Okay, get ready. We're about to do something I never do. I mean, I don't do that often. Let's say that. And man, I could do this a ton. I mean, I could do this probably every week. But we're going to talk to uh, a set of authors about their new book. And I usually am pretty selective. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to sound jerky, but I usually try to really think about a book that has some value. And I think you'll find this one to be incredibly valuable. <laughs> everybody, welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin, and how are you? Are you good? It's, uh, it's We've already done sort of the welcome to 2024 talk, um, but it feels like we need to do more of it. You know, because it's uh, we're barely into January and things are happening, and you know how it is. It's crazy. The world is crazy, 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 crazy. But it's uh, another new year which I guess is filled with lots of opportunities. And uh, and that's good. I don't know. January is an interesting time. I don't know how you feel about January, but I usually am at a point where I'm kind of done with winter and I'm ready for it to get, you know, warmer so you can hang out and do stuff and not have to wear a million coats and slip on ice and drive around and all, except for you guys that live where there is none of that, luckies. But for those of us that live in the, you know, the world filled with all sorts of weather, January gets long and dark, but at least the days are getting longer. So that's a plus. And that's exciting. What's your plan for the year? I mean, do you have any big plans for the year? I'm super interested. It looks like we've got another secret project going. That's all I can say, but you can kind of guess what that's going to be. So that'll be something that I'm going to do. And other than that, I think. Man, I don't know. I'm really trying to rein in my time in airports because that feels like time that you'll never get back. And so that's always kind of an interesting thing to do. Although every time I say I'm going to do less time in airports, I spend more time in airports. It it almost never goes away. It's just that's the story, and that's how it works. But other than that, uh, you know, things are chomping along. I'm trying to think if there's any like anything really exciting uh, worthwhile. There's a ton of stuff coming up on the podcast, and it's all just been kind of in the middle. It's unbelievable to me how many of these we've done, and yet you kind of never run out of stuff to talk about. I mean, I think I run out of stuff to talk about in the introductions, but the actual meat of the podcast there's always tons of stuff to talk about. And we did a bunch of really interesting ones that got a lot of good feedback towards the end of last year. And next year, got lots of stuff coming up. Lots of emphasis this year on kind of deeper discussions on some of the fundamental ideas. And I think that's the timing's right for that. So that's, it's probably a good way to have the discussion. We should jump into this uh, discussion with Ivan and Krista. So I talked to Ivan Papaliti and Krista Vessel. And if you don't know them, they're great folks. Um, they're both actually on the faculty at UAB. And they're both people who've been involved with the new safety ideas for a long time. I mean, a long, long, long time. Um, and, and you know, like I, I've known Ivan uh, 
from a work relationship, I mean, a long, long time ago. And they have been working diligently for kind of quite a while to put together a book. And I think you'll find this book really interesting. It's called Human and Organizational Potential. Human and Organization Potential. Yeah, that's it. I see. I got the, I got the name right. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a really good overview. I think it's actually a really good foundational book for these ideas that we've talked about. And one of the things that's exciting, and you'll hear us talking about this, is as time's progressing, we're just getting smarter. We're, we're backing stuff up with research. We've got lots of people that are looking uh, throughout other fields and areas and disciplines, and things are starting to synthesize is the word they use in the academic community. And so lots of the ideas that we deal with now would have been really controversial 20 years ago. Like when pre-accident investigation, my first book came out, I mean, we were just starting this discussion. And I always think about the field guide to understanding human error and how early that was and how so much of that has stood fast and been strong and how so much of it has over the time developed and morphed and changed. And that's kind of this book. Think of this book as kind of the current status of this new thinking. At least that's how I thought of it. It's a fun read. I think you'll like it tremendously. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting book to read. And Ivan and Krista are charming and quite nice and talk in great detail about this very topic. So let's, without any further ado, jump into this conversation. This is a discussion on Ivan and Krista's new book, Human and Organization Potential. That's the thing about, um, you know, crappy, cheap furniture is that it, it wears out as it's, as it's supposed to, as it is supposed to. So that's good. So why did you guys write this book? Is that too broad? No, Todd, it's not too broad. So why did we write the book is an interesting question. I think there's a lot of reasons. There were a lot of things that have been rambling around inside my head for the last 24 years of working on this stuff. A lot of it was inspired by you and Sydney, And I wanted to get it down. I wanted to get it down in writing so that we could have kind of a, a history of what we did together and how we brought this, this uh, concept of HOP to a wider audience. And, uh, and I also wanted to have an idea for people to look at something that they could look at that would show the, the resources that we've all used for all these years and have them sort of collected in one place. So that was, that was part of the reason. And then the last reason is because I'm teaching a class in HOP for the university and, uh, this is going to be our textbook. So it was kind of two birds with one stone. Yeah. Literally, maybe, maybe even three. Yeah, I was going to say maybe three birds, <laughs> but that seems greedy. As for asking for three birds is just greedy. That's just, yeah, and I, I never liked the idea of killing birds. So, how did you limit all the stuff you know into the book you wrote? Oh, so this is the hardest thing, and you know this, Todd. I, I it, think it's the most interesting thing too. I mean, I, it, yeah, it's very interesting to me. There were a lot of sacrifices. There were a lot of things that that were left on the cutting room floor that couldn't be included in the book. Um, we wanted to give enough background and enough continuity in the book so that you could follow it. And 
like you said, it's an, how did you describe it? The, the book? So it's a really gentle read, right? It reads really nicely and it's broad, but it's not deep. And, and I think that's actually a compliment. I mean, I don't, we have peers in our world, both of us, all of us, all three of us, who I think see that as a slam, but I actually don't think it is. I like the idea that you can talk about um, sort of the overview, and it's not a complete overview by any stretch of the imagination. That book would be 9,000 pages long, but it's an overview. And then when you find areas that you think are especially interesting as a reader, then that kind of gives you implications for further research. You can think, I'm going to look more into this part because this part's really interesting to me. Um, I, I just think it's really, uh, you did a really nice job. It's a very easy book to read, which is a hundred points to your favor. And I think it's a, it's, it's a very mature and kind of contemporary understanding of where we are in this thinking right now. So, if you said contrast it with the field guide, right, or contrast it with um, pre-accident investigation, those books were written a lot of years ago. I mean, and and there that was all these ideas were pretty new, and now you've got a certain amount of maturity around people thinking about this and talking about it and practicing these things and going out and using it. I mean, that's one of the things I think both you and Chris bring to the table is that you're academics, but you weren't academics. You were practitioners. And one of the downsides, I think, with – oh, I shouldn't say this because it will get me in trouble. But one of the downsides with people who are exclusively academic is I think they, they, they miss the part of where you have to actually do this crap. You know what I mean? I do. <laughs> and actually, that was a big challenge, was grounding something in academics – and thanking the people that had come up with those concepts, uh, like you and David Woods and Sidney Decker and everyone else, and yet also writing something that wasn't scary. Because our goal was that this could be a book that a practitioner or a safety manager could buy and put on his own boss's desk, and it might actually get read. So that's a so first of all, that was a the. That's the best description of this book. It's not scary. That's actually a really good description. So hold on to that because that's powerful. But who who was your audience? I mean, did you did you guys have long discussions around? Okay, who are we writing this for? Well, we've been dealing so long now, uh, teaching at the university for seven years, uh, that our audience has become mostly our students. Our students are really representative of, of who this book is, is designed for in that our students are practicing health and safety professionals uh, and others that come from a variety of different backgrounds, medicine, aviation, oil and natural gas, and trying to find something that addresses all of those audiences means that, as you said, it has to be broad enough to, to cover those audiences and give them enough to dig into to actually learn something. But in addition to that, we wanted to provide the resources so that if they wanted to, they could go deeper. You know, I'm a big believer that there's no single recipe for creating a safer workplace. There are principles that we can align ourselves around. And those principles are well expressed in other books. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to set the stage for the underpinning for the principles 
and then give them the ability to stealth design for their own organization. So not a cookbook, but a, a way to kind of look at the way we're addressing safety to create safer workplaces that isn't prescriptive, but rather is open and nurturing and brings them into the room so that they can learn themselves. And helps build fluency, right? Yeah. The whole idea of, of fluency, which I think goes with what Chris just said about being not scary, is that you're, you know, there is no one right way. That's obvious. I mean, maybe that's not obvious, but if you do this work anytime at all, it becomes really obvious. Yes. But I, I like, I, I really like that approach. Was it difficult? You know, we've been practicing this for a while, certainly with the university. And the interesting thing is this. Yes, we're professors, but we're also facilitators and mentors. And we learn through our students. If, If we didn't learn something every time we teach a class, we wouldn't be doing it. So we've learned what resonates and what makes them feel uncomfortable And our goal is really to make them just uncomfortable enough that they actually move from a place of knowing to a place of learning. And that is a big step for many people because they don't ever move to inquiry. And you can't learn anything unless you're in a state of inquiry. I'll, I'll never forget when you were teaching HPI at Los Alamos and, um, (laughs) <laughs> you, there, there, we always have this government nonsense that we're supposed to show what the class is about. You know, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said. And you never took that that attitude about the course, which I always thought was really, really impressive. You held it like a dialogue, which is, I think, the most important place to do it. But the thing that you said that will always stick with me is that your goal was to have them leaving with more questions than they came in with. And I think that that is really an important thing because that empowers the learner that gives the learner the authority, the responsibility and the ability to take the role of learner and be in that place without any kind of bad feeling. They don't have to be in the room to know something. They have to be in the room to begin to question. And so I think that that's a big underlying principle for us in this book is to create that atmosphere of not certainty, but understand that there is no certainty in this field. We're dealing in complex systems. We're dealing with, in some cases, fatalities, in other cases, injuries. And in a lot of cases, just with normal work that doesn't have a lot of certainty. And so why would we try and tell them something? I mean, that that's like selling a concept, and that's not what we're in the business to do. We're in the, in the business of kind of creating a, a roadmap, is what uh, David Wood said, helps them to navigate this this really incredibly difficult, challenging, and complex workplace that they, that they are all trying to help in. And yet that road doesn't just have a beginning and an end. No, it doesn't. It, it is multidimensional, and you never know where it's going to go. That's why it's, this is an exciting time, and it's an exciting book. Uh, we hope that we can motivate people to actually take some of these ideas on. And share them with others. That's the main thing. We have a part in there about dialogue, and dialogue is so important. Um, as David Bohm and, and Bill Isaac say, you know, dialogue, it, it, it's, it's a container. We have to form this container where people are willing to share, have the psychological safety to want to share 
and and it doesn't have sides it just has a middle and we all have to move into that middle space where we can share so given that idea of creating dialogue and space for dialogue and the really important and powerful premise that knowing is the enemy of learning how did you guys go about cracking some of the paradigms which i think you're pretty effective at in the book was it the case studies do you think that helped crack those paradigms or help begin that dialogue case studies certainly helped, but another part that became really important for us were the dialogues that we were having in these different communities of practice so we're like i said our students are very diverse in their backgrounds and they're all operational they're not just students they're not just academics they're operational people trying to do things in communities where Safety is what they're told to create, and they're having trouble doing it. So when we engage them in a dialogue, we get to test out different approaches. We get to test out different ways of getting people from an engineering mindset, which is quite linear, to a more expansive mindset that puts them into inquiry. And, and a part of, part of it is our first courses that we do with them. We kind of look at it like a giant HOP. We, we have them for an entire semester to try and move them to a place of inquiry from a place often from a place of knowing. And if you're knowing, you're not learning. And so we wanted to try and create that in the book. And so we used a lot of the techniques and a lot of the stories that our students shared with us to help facilitate that kind of a shift in thinking and to make it possible for them to do the same thing in their workplace. Like we're not trying to give you a, a way to do this as much as we're trying to give you the concepts behind creating your own way to do this. Which comes first, the case study or the concepts? I don't, I don't know that you can put one ahead of the other. I think they happen simultaneously because every time we have an incident, accident, or even a normal work event that results in some sort of surprise, maybe a positive surprise, each one of those is a case study that op- offers us an opportunity to learn then how the, how the person, how the individual, maybe it's the EHS specialist, maybe it's the safety professional for, your, for the organization, that person has to navigate and create a story from that that can help the entire organization learn. And, and that means that we have to look at, at the types of, of learning products that we produce. Learning products for senior leaders are certainly different than learning products for frontline managers. And so we want people to be able to recognize that, too. And the book kind of goes into that detail, tries to explain why that might be an important uh, aspect of, of how you craft your safety program. It's, it's interesting, too, because the book is not specifically about learning products, but learning products are an important part of the book. <laughs> I think that's a great observation. Well, in addition, this book um... – it's forming a foundation for another book we're writing that hopefully well, it'll be out in a number of months here. But so you guys talking, this year. you're talking sequel. Well, There's going to be a sequel. The, <laughs> this one is on the learning review. Luke, which is the, I'm your father. Oh, sorry. <laughs> hey, it's my favorite movie. Um, Gosh, I had no idea the, the title. The learning your review is a technique that Ivan developed when he was in the Forest Service. A new way to look at accidents, incidents, and normal work. And we are writing that book to help people actually utilize that entire idea. Uh, it's, it's not a recipe, once again. 
It has many different tools that they can use to look at these things. And honestly, if there is an accident, we try to get them to move away from that as fast as possible Mm -hmm. to normal work because that's where learning is. But this book forms the foundation. You know, part of it's a theoretical foundation. Part of it is practical. And part of it is just motivational. Hey, you can get out and do this. Look at these other people that have done this ahead of you. Uh, You're not the only one having these challenges. It kind of helps them to take what the work that you've done and the books that you've put out there and certainly the work that Sydney's done and the work that David Woods has done. All these people, we stand on the shoulders of some really, really great people with this book. And and what we try and do is bring a lot of these ideas that I, that all these folks have in our in our network um, and bring it to a place where they can begin to apply first understand what, what those people were saying and then apply it in context with each other. For example, when we think of, when we think of an approach to a safer workplace, we think of that as a network between uh, things like psychological confidence or psychological safety uh, culture. Uh, we think about how we communicate. So we think about the work of Bill Isaacs, uh, we start to think about all these people who kind of exist at the periphery of safety and we want to bring them into the conversation. So part of the book is designed to bring those people into our conversation, to make those, the work of those people more, uh, as you said, more, make it more fluent for our, for our readers. And accessible. And accessible. Because as you said, these are some people that are on the fringe that aren't heard of in the safety world, but they should be. Because their work is very important, and it's very practical, and it helps us to ladder, you know, where we are now to where we want to go, and include a lot of things in the in the process. And bringing those other voices in is just such a treat. I mean, it's just what a nice gift you're giving to our little community. Because it is, we get really in. I, I see the same thing, Chris, when people talk about culture that they, they don't realize there's an entire body of work around culture. That, that, and we don't need to reinvent a lot of these ideas. I mean, David Bohm has thought about dialogue way deeper than we ever will, right. miles deeper than we ever will. And I think that's really a, that's an important part as well. What yeah. do you hope people will get out of this? I, I hope that they get, you know, Chris mentions ladders. Um, I hope that they get the ability to begin to ladder in their own organization, ladder the learning in their organization. Not that that's a linear process. It's completely nonlinear. But in that laddering, I, I, I think that one of the places that we have targeted in this book that's been effective is the ideas that help create the conversations that move people to a place where they can inquire, where they don't feel badly about inquiring, like they're, they're not thought less of. And, you know, a lot of it is mentioned already, but I, I don't want to let this go without without mentioning the idea of sense-making and the work that Reuben McDaniel did and bringing that into the room. The concepts that he brought us around how we deal with a complex system just centered on sense-making, hugely important. And the system itself, thinking about moving from ACOF and systems, and I'm going to screw up this name, Bert Lenafi, moving from those folks into our modern view of what a complex system is and making that language accessible because we found it extremely effective with our students to start talking about complex systems and to say, Hey, 
we're not going to say that everything that's been done in safety to this point is wrong. No, that's not the case. But but it has a limited application. Most of what we've done in the safety profession applies to simple and complicated systems. Well, we're recognizing that there's a complex system out there that requires a completely different approach, a different approach to learning as opposed to learning what to do and what not to do. This learning involves understanding how the system functions and what the relationships are inside that system. And that sets the stage for the next book that we're working on, which is, which is really, uh, it's going to be done in 2024 and it's really helping people to make those connections in a complex world, to see the relationship between different pieces of information that exist following an incident, accident, or even normal work and seeing how those relationships make a difference in the creation of safer workplaces. And this all has to do with culture. (laughs) So we do bring in uh, Ivan's culture model that he developed many years ago, which is that of a buoy on top of the water with a line going down to an anchor. And it's similar to, Ed Shine's uh, iceberg metaphor. It represents his metaphor. It, yeah. it has a little more utility because that buoy that's on top of the water, that's the artifact. That's what you can see in your own culture. Even people outside your culture can see these things. And you can push that buoy around, but you know what? It pops back into place. And that's what happens if you deal just with the behaviors of people. You think that you can change their behaviors, but unless you look deeper in that system and that culture, you're never going to make an actual change. Yeah, buoys are anchored literally by an anchor. And unless you move that anchor, you really don't move the culture. It has some variability, but it only has variability dependent on the length of that anchor line. And so we see that a lot, people trying to change behaviors, um, they move to the edge of the, of the behavioral change until the anchor shifts, the location of the anchor, the buoy is ultimately going to drift right back to the same spot. So the behaviors are going to drift right back to what they were before. And you've, you've said this in a bunch of different ways, Todd. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, the kind of one thing that I wanted to talk with you about on this podcast was what did you think of the title? I mean, obviously we've moved from performance to potential. I like it. But I should, to be fair, I've never been in love with HOP or even organizations. I mean, it, it strikes me that the term was just convenient to come up with a term. I mean, I'm not, I don't hate anything, but I, I like the potential idea. I think it's, it's, it's probably more accurate. And I think it's, it, it probably is a more gentle way, less fearful way, if we can use that same idea, to have these discussions. But I, I keep thinking, you know, this this had there had there not been health physicists, this would have been called HP. There'd have been HU and HP. But in our world, we had so many health physicists; they'd already taken up the acronym HP. That we sort of desperately were searching for something to call it. And it's been fun to watch over the last twenty years or so how it's morphed into different things, and. I, this is one more sort of phase of that morphing. I think it's fine. Yeah. But yeah, no worries, no issues at all. I also think it, it speaks to one of the things that you've brought into the, into the conversation. And that's this idea of capacities, potentials and capacities are related to one another. And I, I think that 
well, that's what, what drove us way back when, when we did it. Um, you, you know, who came up with HOP. You remember? Well, um, the, the, there's several stories out there, but they were using it in Europe pretty early in the game. What story do you have? Well, I, and they I, could be, they should be different. Actually, I, I traced it back to the earliest uh, reference that we had to it in all of my old emails and forms and presentations that I did. And near as I can rec- recall, it was uh, Ben Iverson came up with human organization potential improvement or human organization performance improvement. That's what he came up with. Hopi is what we called it. And, uh, and somebody in the forest service back in like 2010 said, you can't use that. That's yeah. a native American tribe. Yeah. That's probably, probably risky. Yeah. Yeah. So we dropped the eye and shifted to potential at that point. And it was about 2010, 2011. Yeah. When that happened. And, and that's cool. That's a, that's a cool origin story for sure. I know they were using the phrase HOP in Europe before that, but I, I mean, it's, it's all kind of amazing how this is all the name's kind of an interesting, weird phenomenon. Let me ask this question. Cause this is a question I'm dying to ask. This is a big one. Ready? what do you guys learn in the process of putting this book together? How to write another book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aside from that, we've done the hard work now. No, they, they, they do get easier. The problem is the second book that the logistics of it gets easier it's the content that's harder. We have the content already for the other book because we've been working on this for so long. So that's that should be okay. It's finding the time, you know, and, and really doing that concerted effort to uh, make make it happen when with all our other uh, jobs in the world. Assortment of crap that you're responsible for, yes. I learned that. If you can write a book and build a house with your spouse, you've got a darn good relationship. Or you're ready, you're ready to move into <laughs> wallpapering. <laughs> which yeah, it's, is a, it's not easy. The, that's for sure. Especially well, when. What did this change? I mean, what you learn? What 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 concepts do you? Because the cool thing about writing a book is it makes you own these ideas in a different way. And, and every time I write a book, I learn stuff. I mean, I'm just like amazed at what I learn. Well, for me, it's it's that. It's limitless potential, right? And it's not about us. Yes. We really appreciate when we come across a great story from one of our, our students or, or colleagues, and they share it, and it makes us think, wow, that's amazing. We should share that with other people, too. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, um, I had one student in my crisis leadership course last semester, and um, he was writing about how uh, he didn't feel psychologically safe in his environment. Because when he was called in by major management for his review, they had this big whiteboard, and they wrote all these things on it of the things that he had not done correctly, or should have done better. And he turned to them and he said, you know, you have my failures written on this whiteboard. What about my successes? Good for him. I I have that next to my desk now because I know that as a professor, I can influence people, but I can also hurt them by accident. And everyone in a leadership role should think about that. How can we build people up with their successes as well as helping them to learn and move forward 
if they did something that could be improved. I ended it right there because I thought that was a really good place to end. It's just a really profound story. You, you've you've told me what I do wrong, but you haven't told me what I've done right and how we can accidentally cause harm. Sort of the Hippocratic Oath for safety people. But I love how Krista talks about the fact that our duty is to create an environment where people can improve, get better. And I think that's a fundamental underpinning of sort of how this happens. Remember, I, I think our job is to help organizations deliberately improve. And the most important word in that sentence is deliberate, deliberately improve, get better on purpose. I think that there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, it's, it says a lot. Thanks for that interview, you guys, Krista and Ivan. That was really great. And I would encourage you to think about this book, Human and Organization Potential. Uh, you can get it any place you get books. You know the drill. And I think it's worthwhile. It's, it's, it's something to look at for sure. Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. Be safe.